I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is with James Duncan. James Duncan is a longtime associate for Corin Crenshaw. He has also worked with Tom Doak. He is a, a great golf mind, and I really enjoyed speaking with him. He's been a fundamental driving force behind the new Corin Crenshaw golf course in uh, north of Napa called Brambles, which is being grassed right now. So it's getting close to having golf holes open and uh, ready to play. I think they're targeting next year for a full opening. But uh, it was great to talk to James. He's he's a wealth of knowledge and, and just a very thoughtful person. So without further ado, here is our episode with James Duncan. With it, can you can you explain that internship that you signed up for? So you're in college, like just the backstory a little bit on that. Yeah, so you know I'm in Copenhagen as a civil engineering student, and there's no such thing as a golf program. So you had to kind of fake it. You had to make it sound like engineering, like a program to be a golf architect. Yeah, there was none of that. Okay. So you had to go to Scotland to do it. Um, I th- I think it. My sister, someone had given me Tom Doak's book, The Anatomy of a Golf Course. It had just come out. And he describes his journey. And of course, I knew about Robert Trent Jones and the Cornell thing and all that. But this was a way to, again, use my whatever credits I had to take in Copenhagen as a way to you know, get my toe in the water on the golf side. Uh, I knew I had to go to Scotland uh, to do it. Uh, my sister lived there, had just moved a couple of years earlier. All my father's family was from there. We always used to visit as kids. Uh, we would go up to the Highlands a little bit more than uh, sort of St. Andrews. We'd go to Edinburgh, we'd go to North Berwick, and we'd go up to the Highlands. Um, but it was always a place, it was a place I was familiar with, and I just felt like, you know, here's, this, this is where you should go if you're trying to get into this golf, golf thing. Mm-hmm. So, it, so you then applied for this internship that you went to the, what, the, the dean, dean of the school or something to get the internship, and they... You know what I did, Andy? I, I went to visit my sister, uh, which is always an excuse to play a lot of golf. Um, and then I set up a meeting with the Scottish Golf Union. And um, it was through that group that they, they recommended some companies. Uh, I then set up meetings to go and visit these companies, talk to the people involved. Uh, the one I was, originally was going to do didn't work out. It was up in Stirling. Um, didn't work out and I'd all but sort of given up on it and I'd actually gone back to Copenhagen then I got a um, phone call I think this is sort of pre-email uh, I got a phone call or somehow this other company the one that I wound up going to uh, reached out and said look we've heard about what you're doing um, sorry it's taken us so long to uh, respond to your correspondence um, and then this guy Morris you know, his name was Morris Gray 
Mara said, I'm going to be in Copenhagen next week by coincidence. Can we meet up and just talk about what you want to do? And uh, he, he and I met, and it was just one of those where it seems legitimate. Let's, let's do it. Let's go. And then off I went, off to Aberdeen, which we were just talking about previously. So you get this internship. Your job is to travel around Scotland and talk to superintendents all over the country. Yep. I mean, I imagine that probably couldn't be a better learning experience for for somebody trying to learn the intricacies of a golf course. It was a total manna from the heavens. I mean, this is just so lucky that that's what they wanted me to do. We talked about in generalities what they did and what they were trying to do. But for them to give me that brief, here's the car, go and see as much golf as you can, meet as many people as you can, talk to them, it was just fantastic. I do two or three a day. Is there a situation like a course and a superintendent that stands out that you still think about like today from that trip? Hands down, uh, George Brown at Turnberry. George, who since passed away, was just, a, you can just tell, this guy is a lovely human being. And uh, he was just so generous with his time. He'd hosted open championships. He was like a big deal. Here comes this pimple-faced you know, engineering student from Denmark. The fact that he even met with me, uh, but he took time and uh, he said, let's go. He had a little cottage on the golf course. My wife has prepared lunch for us. Let's go and sit down and have lunch. And he basically sort of took half a day to tour me around and talk about golf. And I mean, just a wonderful, wonderful man. I would say he stands out as someone I just remember so vividly to this day. That would be crazy. I mean, how, so how many courses did you see over how, do you, uh, over how long of a time? Uh, I think it was about 100, 120, somewhere in that range. Um, all the way from the Turnberries and the old courses and the Prestwicks to you know, places you've never heard of. Uh, but it's interesting, the ones you've never heard of, people I now meet will, ta- will say, have you, have you been to this place? And sure enough, you know, a boat of garden is another one. You know, a boat of garden I remember going to and just being just, it's just a fascinating place because it's a, you probably wouldn't pick it as a place to play golf except it was in this town. It's a very sporting property up over this hill, down this hollow and over and across and heather hills and just very, very interesting uh, golf course. But now, I think now that people are more conscious about Scottish golf, the diversity of Scottish golf, the interesting ways in which, well, why can't that be a golf course as opposed to just sort of what stereotypically is thought of as a golf course? That's now, now that there's more awareness about golf and golf course design and golf history, those places are increasingly sort of cropping back up as, oh, yeah, I remember. I remember going to Boat of Garden. That's, that's, I, mean, like, I mean, that's the best way to see, I, you know, at that age, too, is when you can feasibly do it. It's before you have family, before you have anything holding you back. from. You can just go see as many golf courses as you possibly can because you're a college student. And this is what you want to do. Right. Again, you have to remember at that time, any ideas I might have had about golf course design and strategy or whatever, very, very uh, early. Um, so I was just taking in just the, 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 the diversity of the courses. You got to a place like Ullapool, way up northwest, where I, it could have been, it's just a wonderful place to play golf. Um, so I think I filed that away too, that Let's not get too, yes, there's strategy, yes, there's design and organizing things in a certain way, but a big part of it is also just 
sort of capturing where you are while you're playing and just having that be an essential part of the of the golf experience. And I think that's what the Scots, they were probably too cheap to do too much. So they would just kind of play the courses as they were, uh, which resulted in you just playing the natural ground and the natural conditions do as little to it as you can. Those things have stayed with me to this day where when I think about design, I really try and think about how do you, how do you capture the essence of where you are while you're playing. I, I mean, one of the things that recently with like the U.S. Open at the Country Club that I think people were, I think it captivated people both on the television, people there, but what you just hit on, I think one of the things that I think that the Country Club did so well was it exuded like that sense of place that you're talking about. Like you knew when you were watching on TV that this tournament was in Boston because of the landscape and the 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 colors and the the textures that were presented at that golf course. And I think that's one of the things that often goes a little bit overlooked with golf like great golf courses are they usually give you like you know where you are when you're there. It's not you know, and obviously there are certain courses that pull this off, but it's not a a course trying to be something that it doesn't the the landscape doesn't want it to be right yeah it's a, i think it starts off with you as a club or as a developer or as a an operator that you want to do you value that it has to start there it, it, if you start off saying i want to be like take a pick of a famous course and you just work towards that you're never going to have what we're talking about but if you value the natural characteristics of your property and the setting and the context, then it takes you in a different direction. That is exactly what you're describing with uh, with Brookline. I feel like that is like a, a it's like, and I I don't use this term lightly, but that's like a disease that that runs through America. Is the idea uh, in American golf is like we we need to be like this, and for years it was Augusta. For, you know, and then, or, you know, for local clubs, it's, we need to be this prominent club down the street versus like the idea of just being yourself, right? 18 holes. I mean, like now recently in the last 10, 15 years, 12 holes, 13, six, it's something that has gained awareness and people are doing in in great uh, fashion. Uh, but until until that, it was all well, you got to have eighteen, you got to have par seventy two, you got to have you know four fives and four threes, and it's got to be a certain distance. I mean, I'm old enough to remember the when you know in the nineties when all the development was happening, you had to have it had to be hard, it had to be difficult. Fun was not really in the equation, yeah, you because know, it's all about the rankings, and you only got ranked if you were difficult, and this was more difficult than that. It was an insane way of thinking about golf, at least from my point of view, when the essence of the game is to have fun. So what was your first like construction job that you were on a crew? So the company that I went and did the internship with, they were also doing a nine-hole renovation at um, Kilmarnock, which is up by Glasgow on the West Coast. I can't say I was involved in any meaningful degree other than I was on a construction site. There's all this stuff happening this is really cool, and um, I want to keep moving uh, towards this. 
but I didn't I didn't have time. It was it was there was an academic component. I had to do the the, the coursework and and prepare for that. Then I went back to Copenhagen and finished finished my studies. Um, but then at the end of it, had to uh, write a thesis, and that's what took me to the states. Same process: write, send off letters this time to the USGA, and ask them for recommendations on where to go to further pursue what I was interested in. And they very kindly, Jim Snow and Kimberly Arusha, wrote me a letter back and said, "These are the universities we would recommend, with the usual suspects, including Cornell." And that's how I wound up uh, at Cornell. Um, and, and as some of your listeners may know, they met all the usual suspects: met Tom Doak and Gil Hans and Jim Abina, and that was my real entry to what was going on at that time in the, in the U.S. These guys were these young mavericks just doing all this interesting, fun stuff, and, and I somehow got a toe in the door, and, um, and here we are. That had to be an interesting experience going from, I, I imagine, you know, you're in Copenhagen where nobody's doing any of this, and then you move, you know, across to the United States and you meet these other young guys that are all doing, like, it had to be kind of like a, a real I, I don't know what the right word is but like when you're you know young and you you know like had to be just a neat experience to like get and be with other people where you can dis- discuss this stuff right and yeah, I think as well those you don't appreciate how lucky you, you were I was at that time until now I mean I look back on it now and say what an incredible uh, stroke of luck those guys at that time like 93, 94, somewhere in there, where we're building 300 golf courses a year in the country. There's just nothing but opportunities, interesting thoughts, things happening. So yeah, it was a perfect time, a perfect place. What, what did you notice different from what they were doing from what everybody else was doing? Well, again, I didn't know enough to really know the difference at the time. I just knew that these guys were doing some interesting stuff. We went down, Stonewall had just been built. Um, this is right when Gil had left, uh, Tom, and they were all sort of pursuing very interesting things. Um, and um, But I can't really say I had a frame of reference other than you know, I went to Augusta, saw the tournament, and just you've never seen, I mean, you guys have been, I mean, it's just unbelievable when you actually see it. Uh, went to Marion, went to National, I mean, just had a chance to see all these special places and was blown away by all of it. Uh, and mercifully, I mean, worked uh, with guys who knew what they were doing and, and had a chance to learn from them. Uh, but but back then, I was you know, a glorified ditch digger. I mean, I was just out there, just tell me what to do and I'll try and do it. Mm-hmm. You might have been a good ditch, ditch digger, though, <laughs> you know? <laughs> what, uh, when, did you, when did you link up with Bill and Ben? How did that happen? I had met, obviously knew them by reputation, um, I had met Ben, I'd met over at National. He was practicing for the 95 US Open at Shinnecock. Corey Pavin won. That's right. The forward. forward. There you go. He was practicing over there, and of course I was just awestruck, and he's at National. I mean, come on. He loves the place, and he's over there, like radiant, beaming. He's playing well. You know, he just won the Masters. I mean, it's Ben Crenshaw. He just won the Masters. He's at National. So, I mean, I, I'm just, you know, completely awestruck. Uh, and then Bill, I met, I think, at one of Tom's events. He had you know, the Renaissance Cup. I think just met him briefly. Um, 
But do remember at that time thinking, if I ever have a chance um, to work with those guys, I'd love to pursue it. And Tom very generously um, at that time wasn't, this is before you know, Band of Dunes, and we had a few things going on, but it wasn't like he was, you know, had way too much work to handle. So he very generously, I think he called Bill and said, look, I have this guy. Um, he's doing some things with us, but he has expressed an interest in, in working with you. And um, I have to tell the story because it, it just, again, just illustrates the sort of person that Bill is and, and, and Ben also, that I had to go back to Denmark. Uh, there was a, some family. My, my father was very ill at the time. I had to go back to Denmark, and I left Bill a voicemail before leaving, and I obviously didn't expect anything at all. Bill calls me back in Denmark on the landline in my parents' house, apologizing profusely for not having called me back earlier, four days after. So, I mean, you, someone who does that for you, and and uh, so I just immediately felt like, man, this 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 is um, this is special. Um, and I knew they were going to do a project out in East Hampton, East Hampton Golf Club. And um, I said, Bill, I'll do anything you want me to. I'll, uh, it could be for a week, it could be for a month, it could be for the whole project. I'll I'll drive a water truck, I'll rake bunkers, I'll do whatever you want me to. And you can tell he's like, are you, are you serious? I said, yeah. Let me when I when I come back, let me just. I was in Ithaca at the time. Let me just um, come out and, and meet with you. If that's okay, we'll just, we'll just meet up. Sound, it sounds similar to when he met Pete Dye. Probably, which of course I didn't know at the time. Yeah. Um, so I drove out there in my, Vol- my Ithaca Volvo station wagon, right? Horn-rimmed glasses, tall, lanky Danish guy, all theory, <laughs> no experience. Who is this guy? <laughs> right? And I'm out there with the guys who have actually built this stuff, Dave Axland, those guys, Jim Craig. And they took one look at me like, really? This guy's going to work out? So I think almost like as a joke, it was almost like, all right, let's see if he actually will drive a water truck. And I did. And we had a great summer. We had like five or six of us working together, Jeff Bradley, all the usual suspects. And uh, we had a great summer. And then I think my stroke of fortune was that this thing in California was going to go dos pueblos in uh, Santa Barbara was coming online. And it fit my skills to a T. Reams of plans, permit conditions, grading, erosion control, kind of a proper engineering project. And they looked around the room like, who, who can we send out there? Well, there's our guy. So Bill asked me, would I go to California and um, be part of the Dos Pueblos thing? And I went out and it didn't happen, uh, which is a whole other story, but... Um, then um, while I was out there for a while, uh, Ben and some of his friends had bought this property in Austin and they were going to build the Austin Golf Club. And they said, well, if Dos Pueblos isn't going to happen, why don't you come to Austin and help us build Austin Golf Club? That's uh, that Dos Pueblos project. Uh, that sounded like a spectacular place. Could have been. I just drove by it just the other day. The PVC posts are still out there marking the tees and the turning points and the greens. That was a so, Chevron? Was was it Chevron it was or? Arco. Arco. Arco site. It was a, you know, they would come in with the tankers off coast and then they would pipe it from the tankers up onto the property in these big holding tanks. And then they would do the refinery or refinement or whatever it's called, the 
processing of the crude on that property and then truck it to wherever it was needed. So it had been decommissioned as a oil refinery site. Um, and they were going to convert it into a public golf course, $40 golf, public access with pedestrian trails and equestrian trails and you know, bike trails and proper access to the beach. And my sense was in the local community, there was nothing but support for it. But sort of in the special interests uh, groups, they fought it tooth and nail. It was water, I think water was an issue, a big issue, having enough water out there and, and being able to justify using it for golf was a big issue and probably legitimately so. Some of the other things were a little bit more uh, marginal, like seals, you know, the errant golf balls were going to impact the mating rituals of the seals down on the beach. Like, come on. I mean, you just you people just trying to block this project. So it never happened. And um, it still sits there. That had to be kind of like, a, you know, you're young. It's like you're, you got this job. You, you know, you're super excited working with these guys. And having that happen with one of you, like the first projects, had to be tough, like having it not happen. It was tough. But it was so exciting just to be there. But I do remember that... The, and we still sort of, we don't think we joke about it, but we certainly still make reference to it. Um, I remember one particular meeting, and I don't think Bill would mind my saying this. Um, I remember one meeting, um, a Coastal Commission meeting, um, which we had to attend, and um, people go up there and make their case for you know, either being in favor of or against the project. And this one particular attorney goes up and claims that the golf course architects the developers had made no effort to incorporate the various interests of the community, which was patently untrue. I mean, they had moved the greens, moved this, and let's change this over here. And Bill approached him during an intermission. He said, you know, you know just as well as I do that we have made all these changes. We've done all these things. And the attorney goes, Bill, please don't take it personally. I'm just, I'm just doing my job. I'm just representing my client. And Bill just turned around and walked out of the room. Like, this is, not a, this is not a process. This is not a conversation. This is just a waste of everybody's time, which was a shame. Um, so, yeah, that was the end of Dos Pueblos. Yeah, that's uh, still stakes in the ground. That's uh, what, uh, so Austin Golf Club, that's, a, that's a, one of the things that's unique about that course, I think, from what people have characterized me, I've played it, but is that it's more... Crenshaw than, you know, Corin Crenshaw, right? Absolutely. That's a that's really like a Ben Crenshaw golf course. By design. I mean, Bill was very, again, again, speaks to who he is and who they both are, that Bill felt like this should be, this is Ben's home club. This is something that he will be part of for the rest of his life. He should be the driver on this. And it was hilarious. It's hilarious to watch these two guys, right? Because it's there's a, always a humor component. Um, um, but... I think I think Bill did most of the routing, you know, laid it out and with Ben's ad- ad- advice. But yeah, no, you're right. All the greens, all the details, the bunkering, everything is essentially uh, Ben's handiwork. Why is it a like what's different when Ben does everything from when you know the usual process of them building golf courses together? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think Tom Kite described Austin Golf Club as the hardest golf course from 10 yards in, that there's so many little nuances in the greens. And 
If you're a really good player, you can work your way around those. If you're not so good, it's, it's, it's tough. So I think that's a different... Ben would probably not do... Or Crenshaw together may not do greens quite like that for a less accomplished... A place where you're trying to accommodate a greater spectrum of players. It's, it's a good player's club. I think that's probably one difference. Uh, some of the maybe some of the visuals like you know, Ben. I don't think Ben was particularly interested in anything looking particularly flashy or it's all pretty subdued and golf centric and about placement and about angles and about contours. Ben's a big big on contours, mounds and things like that. So I think that's probably one difference over uh, something they might have done done together. Um, and again, just the simple unpretentious, no frills, just go out and have a good time playing golf. Would you characterize, the way I've kind of always thought about it in my head, and I usually like to rate, relate things like everybody does back to, like, in a way, Bill's almost like the writer and, and Ben's an editor, where he comes in, he looks at the project and is like, oh, what do you think about this? What do you think, you know? Like, are you sure this, you know, like, and, and that's the way the kind of process works where, you know, Bill will put together the, the article or the book and then Ben goes through it and, and, and edits and gives his thoughts on different things. I think that's true. Uh, and I think, in fact, well, I will say this about Ben, his uncanny ability to just step off a plane or out of a rental car and go out, walk around and then... It's such a high golf IQ and has played the game so well for so long to say, how about if that shot presented itself a little bit differently? How about if we raise this up a little? And he's got this incredible, interesting, idiosyncratic uh, vocabulary. Oh, that's a little eggy. What what does that mean? There's a little eggy over there. (laughs) You know, (laughs) how about this little guy right over here or that hot dog or whatever? Just the language is just fascinating. You can write a, a dictionary of, of just sort of terms that they use. You need that internally. for like the young guys that are working their first job with them. It's like here's the translation of these things. Yeah, that's a little that's a little puffy right there. Yeah. So um, no, but you're right. But I did discover. So my role with them, really, for most of my time working with them, was sort of um, organizer, project organizer. You know, you've got to organize the all the various project parts and give the guys what they need on the shaping side and sort of work with the client, you know, that sort of thing. So I would also organize Bill and Ben's time. And when do you need Ben to come back? Well, if you just blew up the fairway because you're putting in irrigation drainage, he doesn't really, what am I looking at? There's just a piles of stuff out there. Uh, so you had to get him at the right time. And there were sort of two times when it was really ideal to get him. One was once you're setting the stage, you're trying to, the concepts for the holes, a short four or path three or a longer hole over here, the way they all fit together, the changes in direction, great time to get him out there, get the two of them together, lay the foundation. And then he could go away. He was still playing at that time. Go away, play. And then you'd have to get him in once you were at a certain point of detail with the shaping where he could see it. I can see how this looks and I can see, yeah, again, a little too eggy or a little little too puffy or whatever it was. Uh, so to get him at the right time uh, was the key. And then they were just incredible together. Um, 
and the way I, you could tell that Bill relied on and greatly valued um, Ben's input uh, because from his point of view, you know, you, you've got so much going on with organizing jobs. Where are we going to go next? Have I routed this course for this prospective client? Did I go and look at these four other properties that Ben could come in with fresh eyes and say, yeah, well, okay, that's fine, all that stuff, but that's maybe a little bit too eggy over there on the corner of that green. Well, I mean, I think that's like with, I think anybody can relate to that. It's like when you get so deep in the weeds and your thing and I, in a, in a golf project, a golf course that you're talking some of these things from end to end four years, you get, and you know, I think one of the things that's unique about Bill, Bill and Ben and Corin Crenshaw is like, they don't take a ton of jobs. Right. So, you know, the jobs that they do, they are deeply, deeply invested in and very in the weeds. So when you get into those weeds, you know, you lose sight of little things and you get almost too close to really, it's that whole saying, oh, you, you're so, you, you can't see the forest through the trees, right? And that's where the, it's nice to have somebody that just comes in and has, you know, has... Also, like at the time, what you're describing is going around the country playing golf at different places and seeing new stuff all the time. You know, granted, the tour is playing the same places for the most part, but I think he was going and seeing new courses, as I've, I've read a lot about, like, you know, famously going up to play Crystal Downs before he won the, won the Detroit event or the Warwick Hills event. But, um, but yeah, it, it's... Uh, it's, that's a fascinating thing about like scheduling their time. I have to ask, you know, you know, with that, like, how is it, uh, how is it scheduling all this stuff with in, in planning with somebody that doesn't have email? That's a good point, and somehow it works. Uh, and you're right. To this day, uh, Ben doesn't have email. Bill doesn't have email. They, they, you ask the wives, they might have a slightly more nuanced view on this. How do they actually communicate without email? Because there is some. Some that goes uh, channel through there. They have Scotty in the office. Scotty Sayers in the office. Um, but yeah, they, 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 I think, I mean, it's, I admire that. I admire the keeping sim- things simple. I mean, this is, you were talking about stories. I mean, I, these, these are just coming to my mind as we speak about it. But I think there was one interview they did during the, um, I think it was the Pinehurst renovation, where they're being interviewed about the project and about, um, how that's all going and the interviewer goes yeah there's something uh, on your website about um, whatever it was and they looked at each other and you can tell this is 100% genuine they looked at each other like we have a website they had no idea they had a website <laughs> neither one of them and I, I absolutely could see that so uh, now I think it's a point of great pride right? it's, uh, but that again it just speaks to their personalities let's not clutter things up unnecessarily let's just keep it simple Let's talk, pick up the phone and call me. Let's talk to each other. It's, it's, it's that's who they are. It's, uh, yeah. I, I love when you get, you get text messages from Bill and he, and he uses emojis, but he doesn't use the, you know, he doesn't have the email. It's like, you know, he's using emoji. My dad has no clue what an emoji is, but he, he could use the email, but then Bill doesn't have an email. Like, you know, and I, I, you know, if I had my druthers, I'd probably get rid of my, my uh, email. Uh, what you know? You, we talked about a few projects. You have a, a particular core and Crenshaw course that's been finished. I think we're going to talk about Brambles in a, in a second, but um, that's done. That stands out in your mind as like 
you know, that one's my, my, the place I would spend the most time at. You know, Austin Golf Club was, was so much Ben's project. We were just trying to figure out what Ben wanted. Um, after that, I was very lucky to go to uh, Atlantic City and work on a place called Hidden Creek. And Hidden Creek was, um, was just such a wonderful experience. Um, Roger and Edwina Hansen uh, were the owners and the developers. They, they had other golf courses, Blue Heron Pines, they had a couple of golf courses uh, that um, they had developed previously, but they had known Bill and Ben for years, and this was their chance to work with them, and they were just so excited about it. Um, and I remember Bill saying, and again, just just how what a what a what a wonderful thought, and for him to have the um, the willingness to, to to say this, he said to me, "I want you to work on this project in a manner where you feel like you could take someone back here someday and say, this is what I believe in. This is this is the kind of golf that I like to play and would like to to see and be part of. Use that mindset as you participate in this project." I mean, you talk about a motivator for a 32-year-old. You know, really, you want me to go out here and just basically feel like this is, I'm part of the design process? So that one especially, um, right down to the concept, you know, we sort of came up with this sort of Heathland style. The, the property suited that perfectly. It was going to be a club that, you know, members would play over and over and over again. So again, uh, you, you could come to learn to play the course. It could have a little bit of quirk to it and... Um, so that one, I would say, Hidden Creek was a special two years uh, of being down there and working with an owner who trusted the process. It was different. It was not necessarily what you sort of normally would see on the Jersey Shore. Uh, there was some, you know, some Willie Park influences and things like that locally. But for that era, it was it was very different. Uh, Bill and Ben embraced it, and all the guys. It was it was a very special time. I am uh, back from Scotland, so uh, it was a great trip, just about two weeks over there, and uh, thank you, big thank you to Zero Restriction for getting us over there. Uh, they were our sponsor for the uh, for the two weeks, and, and we'll have a ton of content that's coming out in the next couple of weeks centered around the trip. So uh, they, they have a promo code going on right now if you are interested in getting some good outerwear SGS that's SGS Summer 25. That's the promo code at zerorestriction.com. Big thank you to them for sponsoring this uh, Scotland trip. We have some writing up on the website. Uh, we've posted some social videos. Also, uh, I'm going to be writing kind of like a journal from the trip uh, that I have. I've got notes written down. And I'm just kind of formulating it. I think we're going to run those in the Fried Egg newsletter. So if you're interested in just kind of... Uh, stories and and thoughts on courses along the way sign up for the fried egg newsletter at thefriedegg.com it'll be right there a pop-up you know there's a uh and sign up for that and you'll get it get my thoughts kind of through the newsletter and then they'll be eventually posted to the website as well i think you you hit on something uh with, with the description of you know a golf course like Suiting the design to the concept of the course, and it sounds simple, but it doesn't always work, right? You know, where, okay, you know, we could build quirk into this because it's an everyday golf course versus, you know, building a resort course, which is something that somebody might go to once in their life, you know? And, you know, is that something, 
I guess like, you know, do, do you sometimes see golf courses that are miscast um, and maybe would work better if they were in a different setting? And just speaking in generalities. I mean, you and I, we, we've talked about this privately. I don't want to necessarily uh, get too much into specifics, but yeah, for sure. I mean, absolutely. And I, and I think that's, if you want to go down and look at the body of work that Cora Crenshaw has done, and I only mention them because I know the, their work the best, I think that's one of the things they really do well. They really think through what is the purpose of this golf course. Kapalua. I mean, Kapalua could not be more different from Austin Golf Club. And Austin Golf Club could not be more different from Hidden Creek, Sand Hills. I mean, take your pick. But that very deliberate thinking through what is the purpose of this course, I think they do that as well as anyone I've ever seen. Uh, again, now you're back to setting aside their own agenda, setting aside their own interests thinking about the client, thinking about what's best for the client, uh, really something they do exceptionally well. So piggybacking off that, I think like, you know, the majority of people that will encounter a core Crenshaw course will play a resort course. Mm -hmm. You know, that's just the name. It's a, or a public course like Warren mm -hmm. and Notre Dame. How are those courses different than, say, a Hidden Creek or the private ones? Where are the different, where are the design differences, or East Hampton would be another, you know, private club that, you know, how, where, where are things maybe ramped up, toned down at resorts versus at uh, the private club experience? How do, how do they kind of morph between the two? I think especially in the greens. Again, I, I mentioned before with Austin Golf Club, I mean, those greens for your average resort guest would just be very, very challenging. Um, so, yeah, just a little more room to play, a little more room to get in the hole as opposed to you have to hit exactly a precise shot to do. I think, I think that's the The width aspects, you know, they, all, they like to have wide fairways and different angles and use the property. I think that's pretty universal. You would do that whether it's a resort course or for a private club. So um, the bunkering, you might say, well, the bunkering is a little more forgiving or less exacting um, on a resort course, but... Overall, I would say not really. I mean, they, they, I wouldn't say that, say, that Austin Golf Club or Sand Hills or some of the courses that you would say are some of the more exacting um, of their designs. You wouldn't say that bunkering is particularly punishing. It, it certainly challenges you in terms of where you want to go and how you want to set up your angles and get around the golf course. They're all avoidable. Yeah, exactly. But, you know sometimes you find yourself in them. <laughs> sometimes they become unavoidable because of your own self. Yeah. And that's when they exact the penalty. You know, thinking about like stream song rides, the, you know, that's a you know thing you start to think about is like 18 at Sand Hills. It's like you get one of those bunkers that can just derail your day. And then, you know, but the same can be said about the resort uh, at the 15th at Stream Song Red. You know, like that left bunker there, just death. But then you always wonder, why did I go over there? I knew I shouldn't be over there. What am I doing over there? Well, you know, you got you got to get it close to there to make those holes a little bit shorter. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's, I think that's one of the most interesting things about, you know, one of the golf analytics and people have created these strategies and, oh, architecture doesn't matter because of these strategies. At the end of the day, the architecture, like I, I'm a big believer in like if you play enough golf, you figure these things out. Like in whether or not, you know, the the better players are always going to be more conservative. Like in you, you figure these things out 
And, you know, these, there are a lot of systems and people out there that can help you play, figure things out faster. But at the end of the day, the architecture, really great architecture entices people to do things they don't want to do, you know? And, uh, and that's sometimes what, what happens with, with those holes. Like, that's why you find yourself in some bunkers that you shouldn't be in, you know? I think that's a great way to sort of a catch-all. If you can get people to do things they shouldn't be doing, there's interest, there's challenge, there's attack and defense, there's all sorts of stuff built into that that I think is good golf. As opposed to just being out there just mindlessly hitting or, or, or it's so difficult that it's so obvious what you're trying to not do. Right? It's stimulating, right? Yeah, right. It, like that, I think about that all the time. It's like I, I really love when I get into a situation, and you know, you find it on par fives a lot, where I don't want to go for the green, but I definitely don't want to lay up. And I'm in this situation where neither of the options to me are very, you know, appetizing. And I usually end up going for it, you know, at that point. And I think when when one becomes clear, like, you know, that's the... People always say, you know, I love short par fours. I love short par fives. Like, really what you love is you love the decision, right? And it doesn't have to be a short par four that creates that. A long par three can create that, you know? But it's just that the expectations change, right? I don't know. It's a, it's a fascinating thing with golf. Well, can I ask you about par? I mean, here, you know, we, or maybe we get to it later. But, no, uh, you can ask me a question. I think that is such a... You know, we... To, you know, there's a group of us who are toying with the idea that par is really just um, it just gets in, it gets in the way. Um, what if we play with no par? Um, so there's a study that was done years ago. I think I did a podcast with the guys that did the study like three years ago, and they found on the PGA Tour. So they used um, Pebble Beach was one of them, and I want to say Oakmont was one. Where they had, they looked at scoring averages of, I think nine at Oakmont went from a five to a four, right? And then two at Pebble Beach went from a five to a four. So they took those and they looked at the US Opens there when they were each fives and fours. And they, you know, they did the study, they normalized the data so that it matched. And what they found was when those par holes were played as par fours, players played a quarter of a shot better on the par four than the par five because of loss aversion. Isn't that interesting? So the fear of losing a stroke to bogey created player, made the players play more aggressively and then they played better. So, you know, when it was a par five, players cared less about gaining the shot than when it was a par four about losing the shot. Sure. So par is really like, I, I, you know, I think about this stuff all the time with like professional golf, right? Like par in a way holds back the world's best players. Like if you, if the tour, if the tour was more concerned with the total score. Raise the par. No, the total score. Okay. Rather than the under par score. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could change the par, whatever. Like, you know, the tour likes when 24 under wins. Because it's exciting. Okay. <laughs> but if you change that par from, say, 72 to 68, the total score would likely be, like, so the, 
what 70 times what is 270 let's just say let's just say 270 wins a tournament it's a par 72 it's eight under mm-hmm. if you change the par to two seven to 70 and it was 270 right. i bet 268 wins exactly so like the scores would go down players would shoot lower scores with lower par and then you have to decide as a community of golfers do we want to have lower under par or a higher score because you could also go the other way and say we'll call all the holes par fives and everybody shoots 75 because they're so happy that they have no pressure to yeah you know what i mean well this yeah. is the thing in a way like yeah. what pars turned into is over or under par is more important than the actual score right right like people feel better when they shoot 78 on a par 72 than when they shoot 78 on a par 70 which is silly it's still the same score you know and and I also think about this all the time, right? Like, like, why doesn't par change with the conditions you play in? Like, if you're playing in a 35-mile-an-hour wind at a place that hasn't rained for th- three weeks, that's, like, firm and has tough pins, and I'm playing and it's 75, sunny, no wind, and, and soft because it rained the night before, that's not the same score, right? right? Yeah. Par should change, like, every day almost. You know what we're getting into here, and we may need you know, three podcasts, is to, you know, what drives the game? Why, why do we follow certain things? Why do we insist on certain things? Why do we... And this goes through the game with design of golf courses, the, all the equipment, the way things are maintained, the, what things cost to maintain because of certain expectations. I mean, you really go down a rabbit hole that starts a challenge. If we're talking about par and what does it mean... Where do we stop if we really don't want to start thinking about what, what is the game? Where did the game come from? And I'm not trying to stay in this direction for our conversation, but it's just something that fascinates me. Well, I think the game means something differently to every golfer. And I think that's one of the, the most beautiful things about golf is like, you know, I'm super interested in, into architecture, right? Mm-hmm. And, but I understand, and I think this is where some people struggle, is like, I understand that like, some people are like super into equipment or some, I was at a phase that, you know, when I played a lot of amateur golf, like I was, there's a phase in my life where I was really, really into improvement and like getting better, shooting lower scores. Like that is a, you know, there is a, a portion, a large, I think the largest subsection of the game is obsessed with shooting lower scores, the, the idea of a conquest. Right. And that's where par is so valuable is it's the idea of conquest and that's where the handicap system is addictive like i want to get down to zero i want to get you know it's that i think it's almost like a gamification of the sport i mean you think about all the courses that were built and how much you know like all of a sudden then part what what does par matter if you're playing matches if you're going to your club and the predominant tournament form is always matches and season long like you know, you think about these clubs, like you, you go to a club on a Saturday morning, it's like, hey, you, you in the big game for this, it's all stroke play, it's all that week. You know, what if your big game every week was like a, like the NFL where you you squared off against another guy at the club and it was a match? Pine Valley, the granddaddy of them all here in the States, if that course had been built as a stroke play course the way it was originally and you had opening day, Half the people would say, this is insane. I, I, how do I finish this golf course? 
But as a match play, as a place to just play against someone else where you just pick up after a while, fantastic fun. Right? So we've, it's clearly changed. That's the thing I think that's so funny is like so many people, oh, it's a great match play course. But it's like, I mean, that seems like that'd be a great course. That's the, just a course. You're describing a fun golf course. Yeah, but again, if it was stroke play, I think you would just you feel some serious punishment if you're... That's, well, that's why I hear with like the Crump Cup, you know, and knowing a few people that play it, like if you, if you don't drive the ball, great, you're dead. You know, you just, you know, if you want to play well in that tournament, the Crump Cup at Pine Valley, like the number one thing you have to do is drive the ball great. And typically the best drivers of the golf ball play the best there, you know. I'll tell you what I do, Andy. As, when, as soon as I start going down the rabbit or the, the trail of, or the train of thought of golf should be more fun, uh, you know, find your ball, hit it again, just use contours, make it where everybody has a chance. As soon as I go down that path, there's another path that starts up like, wait on a minute, wait a minute. We also really like to get beat up, you know, serious challenges where you, Again, back to Sand Hills, you're 50 feet down in a hole and you've got this one in a 10 chance of a recovery shot. If you made it so quote unquote fair and reasonable for everybody that you didn't have that chance to get in trouble, you also never had that chance to have that spectacular recovery. Well, I think that's, you just hit on it. Like, and I think this is, I think some of the direction of golf architecture in the last 10 years has pushed it more into this, the fair you know, the idea of fun, wide, every, you can always get your ball around. But I think when you get too far down, and it's just, it's a pendulum, right? When you get too far one way, what you lose is, I think one of the essences of the game is when you're standing over a shot and in, in the back of your head, you're aware of consequence. And, and that's what, you know, that's the feeling you get. And everybody that's listening to this, I assume everybody's played golf, but that's the feeling you get on the first tee, is that there's doubt and there's a, a worry of, well, if, if this doesn't go well, what does that mean for the rest of the round? What it is, like what the first tee is, is getting you used to, the like you get more and more comfortable with consequence as you get into your round. That's why you're the most nervous at the front of your round. And then it's why you're the most nervous on the 18th hole putting in because at 18 on the green, you feel the consequence of if I make this, I shoot X. If I miss this, I shoot X. And no matter how many people tell you don't keep score during the round, most people know around where they're at while they're putting on 18. So I think that like when you think about golf, and I've never really like tried to put this into terms, is like consequence is essentially the key theme throughout the round, whether you're, you know, keeping score or if you're studying great golf architecture, it's a hit it here or else, you know, kind of proposition. And I think, you know, as someone, you know, all of us in golf, um, if I have to make a choice, if I, if I can either have the inscrutable fair, the bunkers are one foot deep, but you, know, so you can never get criticized, if I can either have that or the one where, and, I, and it's all stroke play, and we keep, we down to the decimal point, we keep who got, did what and what hole and what's your total score. If I can have that, or I can have 
the adventure golf where occasionally I'm going to be absolutely out of position. I have nothing, but then once in a while I have a spectacular recovery and I can go in my pocket when I've had enough. I'm taking the pocket game every single time. Well, that's the great thing with match play. Is when you had enough, you put it in your pocket, you say to your competitor, let's go to the next hole. So I think one of the challenges we face right now is how do we reconcile? Okay, we have the pro game over here. That's fine. They can do the thing. For the rest of us who play golf to enjoy ourselves, be challenged, have some fun. How do you reconcile those two? How do you have a, how do we tweak, do we need to tweak the format and how do we then tweak the format where you get the best of the match play, spirit, experience, without losing this, oh, I, my handicap, I'm thinking about my score, which for some people is very enjoyable as well. Is there a way to get the two together? I don't know. I, I think there just needs to be more match play. Maybe golf needs, it needs to just let go of the, I think there's a, a insecurity issue with the game of golf, right? It's not comfortable. It's constantly tried to be put in a box when golf is the game that's least in a box, right? We play on a different course all the time. We play with different people all the time. The weather's different all the time. I think the coolest thing about golf, if I was going to tell somebody why you should play golf, is that golf is probably, much like life, the only game, sport, whatever you want to call it, where you'll never ever be in the exact same, you'll never hit the exact same shot twice in your life, ever, right? Like you never have the exact same putt. You've had a putt, oh, I've had a putt close to this, and you're remembering back, oh, I've had a shot close to this, but the wind will never be the same, the yardage will never be the same, the lie will never be the same. Like all those factors that go into hitting a great golf shot will never be the same, right? And then, but golf has this thing where they want to say, this is what golf is. Maybe that's a good way to wrap it up, this little segment where golf is like life. You know, You're just we're, the host now. We're, we're not going to figure it out. We're not going to figure it out. <laughs> You've commandeered the host duties of no, this podcast. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe you should host it on Friday podcast. So let's talk about this golf course that we're sitting at. Segway. Nice. When, uh, no, more I, no more questions for me. Uh, no, you can ask questions whenever you want. <laughs> Believe me, when it's, it's way better discussion when it becomes two-way than when it's one-way. You know, this is your project, really. You know, Bill and Ben are, are, are the architects, but, you, you know, I talked to Bill about it, and he, he'll say, I think he said to me, well, you, sh you just need to talk to James. That's really James's project. You know, the, the owners of Brambles, well, it's James's project. Tell us about, you know, when you found the site and just your journey of, of building Brambles. Well, I mean, some of your listeners may um, have heard about it or know about it, um, but it really is um, a sort of a manifestation of this conversation we just had for the last uh, half hour about, you know, what is golf? How, how can we create a place that we think from our little lunchbox is a fun place to go and play this game that we love. Um, so I think that's where it really started. You know, you, I've worked on a number of different projects with different clients, different properties, different ideas. If you had one chance before it's all over to build something that you feel this represents what I believe in and what a group of people that I can put together and we can share some interests, share some values, buy into what we're doing together, what would it be? 
And, and that's really what it is. We, walking for us is a big part of that. We don't have to drive around in a golf cart. So the, the property is fairly subdued, I suppose, overall in, in terms of you just being able to walk around it. You know, I love places like, we talk about St. Andrews, North Berwick, uh, but here more locally or maybe like, uh, you know, all the old courses where they picked the property so you could walk around and, and enjoy playing golf. That was a big part of it. Um, there's a bit of a breeze. You ask, you know, Ben, Crenshaw, you know, oh, you, the breeze and the way you have to shape the shot, you have to hold it up in the wind or play the wind or read the wind, f- figure out the direction. So we have a pretty good breeze out here. It's open. It's not too tree-lined. There are some groupings of trees. We're just sitting here looking at them. We were talking about them earlier. And I love that. I love that you get up into the trees and you get out of the trees and you come back and you go up in it again. But it's not all tree-lined. It's not all open. There's some variety in the scenery and the topography. And uh, it was a place where we felt like if you built something like a chest-high mound or contour, it would be meaningful because, again, you're sort of, it's sort of a horizontal type of property as opposed to if you built that on a, a more hilly property, it just doesn't make any sense. But then we have a hole like five, which is a proper up and over a hill type of hole. The old white rock on the face of the hill, just aim for that and I'm kind of disappointed that you guys pulled the fairway down, you know, thought you should have just left it completely blind. Yeah, well, we'll see. We'll see. But that's, that's in essence what it is. And then just trying to cobble together a group of people who buy into this idea, who can see the project as something we're doing together as opposed to where's my locker how many tea times do i get you know forget that just if you want to be part of building something that we're building together that we enjoy together great but let's not fall into some of the, we do so many unnecessary things in most of golf things we convince ourselves we, we need um stacked balls on the range i mean you can, you can start right there and just say who really needs that um and yet effort goes into it. One person does it, then the next person thinks they have to do it. And all of a sudden you get this huge big bill for playing around a golf. Well, how did that happen? Well, we convinced ourselves we needed all this stuff. We're trying to go back to 1870, where it's just a bunch of people out there crashing around in the field playing golf together. I was, uh, you know, one of the, one of the courses that gets, you know, admired the most in golf is Chicago golf, you know, and a lot of people never get to see it, but like, you know, people always like to talk about how great the golf course is. But like one of the things that every time I go there that I walk away with is like how utilitarian the place is run and how, you know, how simple like the operational side of it is like it's, it's, it's brilliantly simple. And one of the things, the conversation that I'll always, I was talking to the head pro during COVID and he was, he was like, I was like, what's going on with caddies? He's like, I don't think we're going to be able to have caddies like when they're reopening back up. And I was like, oh, that's, that's too bad. He's like, I'm really worried about golf carts. And I go, what do you mean? Like, what, you know, he's like, well, like the people that can't carry their bag, like we don't have enough golf carts. And I just like, it made me like burst out laughing. It's like, here's this like club. And I think most people's like outward image of it is like this, this is a ritzy place that, you know, 
but they didn't have enough golf carts to suffice for their tiny little membership when you know when they might have a influx of riders and it's like that simplicity of operation is really beautiful that you know they have like just enough golf carts to get by now that's chicago golf is a really good example of somewhere that we have actually sort of tried to draw the essence out of we're not one of the five founding members of the usga we haven't been around forever but we can still go there and look at what they do and try and take away what they do well and we've been very lucky to do that and at the time scott bordner was still the superintendent when we went and visited a few years ago and he would say look we just nothing's precious we just we get a new guy on the crew go out and mow the greens what do you, what's the worst case? You need to scalp them down a little bit and it'll be fine in a week. I mean, it'll be fine. Just go mow. So that attitude of just small crew, everybody can do a little bit of everything. You just kind of work together. When did you first visit this site? When did you first find this site? And what drew you? Like, I think people, you know, that listen to this probably drive down the road and think about properties as golf sites. And I'm curious, like, you know, there's a lot of land. And here we're we're in Northern California. What what about this property drew you to it? Yeah, I mentioned the uh, Dos Pueblos uh, project earlier on, and that certainly reminded me that it's you have to be careful. It's not a foregone conclusion that you can get permission to build something just because you think, oh, look at that, it's beautiful, some dunes out in the ocean. Let's go build a golf course over there. So step number one was I, mean, I spent a fair bit of time in California. Step number one was nothing in the California Coastal Commission jurisdiction because we'll just never get it done. Um, the wine country, and I was living down in um, South Bay, down in San Jose area at the time, um, but it was literally Golden Gate Bridge, draw a circle around it, sort of two hours. I mean, where could you go from San Francisco or the sort of the Central Bay area and get to somewhere where you could get this thing built and it would make sense to do? I looked out towards... You know, Tahoe at the time was really, had been a lot of stuff built over there. It's, it felt a little overbuilt and, and there was really nothing between. So, so you went to Sacramento, there's no, re- no reason to go out there anyway. You could go down the peninsula, you could go down to Monterey, uh, but then you would never get out from under the shadows of Cyprus and Pebble and all those places. Plenty of good stuff down there. It, it wouldn't really mean anything down there. But the wine country was the one where there really wasn't much good golf. There's Mayakama, which is a wonderful club just over the hill. A couple of little local golf courses. There's an older club, um, Sonoma Golf Club, which does well and has a nice membership and they do fine. But there really wasn't much. If you were up here um, for other reasons and you wanted to play golf, there really wasn't much. I think that's really when the sort of light went off that if we could find a place within striking distance of the wine country in general, a place that millions of people come to, from all over the world. Not only do you then have people who come and use the facility, which we want to maintain a healthy caddy program and all that stuff, you also get built-in geographic diversity. You get people from New Zealand, people from Chile, you get people from Denmark, all over the place coming here. Which you might say, I mean, that's a little esoteric, but I do think when it comes to the culture of the club and the people who come through here, to have that, I think it's going to have a significant impact on what we become as a club and as a place to play. Imagine you're sitting on the porch out here and there's, oh yeah, we just flew in from Argentina two days ago. We have family down in St. Helena or whatever. I think that could be a neat piece of 
who we become. I mean, yeah. I One of the strangest human beings I ever played golf with was at Monterey Peninsula. This guy, I, played, I was playing with Zach uh, Blair, and we were on this trip. But he... He invited a guy that he met at the coffee shop that morning to be our fourth. He was this guy. He was a guy from Germany. He was a golf pro from Germany. And it was like one of the most fascinating things because here's this like guy who's at the coffee shop and he got invited to go play Monterey Peninsula Club that morning. And he just happened to be a German golf pro. And he's like, yeah, I'll go play. Sure. And and here he is. We're playing. And it was just like a fascinating thing because I learned a lot about like German golf. Like, I would never have learned that. And I think that's one of the neat things also about a golf course is, like, it's a meeting place. It's a place where you can learn stuff. You can talk and converse with people. And, you know, you get, a, like you said, a wide range of backgrounds. The more more different people, you know, from different backgrounds, it just it adds a whole place, right? And I'll tell you what, Andy, it's just like the par or no par or match play or stroke play. You can bake it into the pie. You can consciously say, we want this type of property, but we also want to try and build a certain type of club. And, and really pull these levers and say, rather than, nothing to me would be more boring than if we became a version of, say, sort of generally the Hamptons, right? Where the same people you saw all week long in the city, now you're hanging out with them at the beach club uh, in, in the Hamptons, right? I mean, yeah, that's nice, but... It's just much more interesting if you just get some fresh influences and some people who have a different point of view than yours. Like, you know, I've never thought about it like that. The guy from Germany who says, well, we don't stack our range balls in pyramids. We do them in snake or whatever. I mean, just something different and interesting that you never had thought about. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, how are you going to go about getting that? Is it just the influence of having a place like, do you think it'll just naturally happen from having wine country right there? We're very lucky. You have members too. Yeah, we do. And we're very lucky that we now, I mean, we're just so lucky to be in the position we are now where it actually looks like this golf course is going to, it's going to work and the grasses are going to grow. And it's just a, it's a, it's a great spot. And, and we've had a lot of support. We have, we've been lucky that people really, you can tell some people they, they can't see it, they, but they, they can hear you talk about it. Their friends get it. The Bill Corr, Ben Crenshaw thing, you know, if they think this is something that is worth for them to be involved in, then it's probably going to be okay. So the, I think there was a part of that early on where guys were just, or mostly guys, we're very lucky to have quite a few women members as well, and we'd love to get some more. Um, but I think there's that, there's the, there is this sense of being part of something. Um, and ironically, we haven't really tapped into the, because we're not open yet. Yeah. So this idea that people actually come and, play while they're in the wine country. We haven't really experienced that yet, but I'm pretty sure it'll happen. And then the key, the very, the luxury problem we have then or challenge is to make sure that we leave spots for interesting people who come along who want to be part of this as members. Mm-hmm. It's a great problem to have. And there's a, from what I understand, there's always, there's a, a aspect of accessibility that's always going to be a big part of it, right? Absolutely. I, again, without naming names, um, I can remember m- several projects where you, know, you go out and you put two years into building a golf course and the guys are out there double cutting and raking all the bunkers and nobody's playing. Nobody is playing. I mean, I, I can see how that's maybe exclusive, but it's also like there's nothing happening. You've got to have some play, especially if you want to have a caddy program. You've got to have some volume. 
And nobody goes to St. Andrews or those abandoned. Nobody goes abandoned and or maybe, you know, and complains about, oh, there's too many people here. It's they're all golf enthusiasts who are there to have fun. I don't think we're ever going to be packed up here unless we have an event or something, but let's have some play. Let's have people come out and play. Yeah, yeah. It's it's neat. It's, um, you know, can you talk through some of the, you know, challenges of, of building here in California and, and, and this property specifically? Yeah, well, actually one of our most recent members asked me uh, that question the other day. He said, well, what's, what was, what's, what's, he asked me, what surprised you the most during the build process? Um, and knock on wood, I would almost say that it's been as smooth as it has been. Um, I think COVID's been a factor that, you know, yes, it was hard to get materials, it was hard to get, um, you know, a crew put together. But once we had a crew and once we had our stuff here, we just got after it, you know, outside and working. And so I think we actually had a, it was, it was a good time to build a golf course. And then, of course, in the last year, prices have skyrocketed on everything. Good luck getting sprinkler heads or whatever you're trying to get. And if you can get them, they're twice what they were a year ago. So, um, no, we've been, it's been very fortunate. Good, good time to, to build. It's no question. Every, everything's expensive. Everything in the world is expensive right yeah. now. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So obviously I think that one of the things that people take away from this course, like is like visually when you think uh, a lot of times when you think of core Crenshaw, it's like striking. And here I think it's a little bit less, I think it's subtle. You know, I think there's this golf course like i think a lot of people like when i first saw photos of it of the property i thought it was flat and then you get out here and you're like no there's a lot of good movement here i mean like a popular thing is to call chicago golf flat but there's good movement on chicago golf right of course we talked about here has good movement but it's a little bit more subtle it's not it doesn't have the big ups and downs you talked about how you could add bumps like is there other things that you think get drawn out a little bit more when you have a, a piece of ground that's not maybe in, as in your face as some of the dramatic sites. Yeah, I, I might just tweak that a little bit and just take you back to the conversations we had with Bill and Ben when they came out here. That, you know, we, we, we said to them, look, you know, don't hold back. You, you don't have to worry about it being too severe. You don't have to worry about the contours. We'll just we'll have a well, green speeds can be whatever these contours will support. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll, we'll figure it out. We also had a conversation about how yeah we don't really we don't nobody plays the old course or North Berwick and goes like wow can you did you see that beautiful bunkering out there? No the the, the bunkers are the shadows, great placements, holes in the ground, ground that kind of draws you into the bunker. How about we have something like that? Because if we try and do something that's more visual. We're always going to look like a horrible version of the beautiful work they've done at San Francisco Golf Club, Cal Club, Orinda. I mean, take your pick of all the Bay Area clubs that have done a beautiful job with their bunkering, and it's very visual. We go the other way. We go, the bunker is it's a hole in the ground with a shadow and try to stay out of it. And I also think the whole types, rather than bunker left, bunker right, strategy, play around, how about the first hole is the one with the ditch in front of the green? How about the fifth hole is the one where you hit it over the hill? How about the sixth hole is the one with the stone wall on the side? Where they have a lot of sort of inherent personality, 
procrastinator's dilemma. I mean, you've got a hole there where at some point you're gonna to have to cross over the creek. Those are the ones that I, again, this is very selfish, but that kind of personality, uh, that's a landscapes in and of themselves. Anyway, I'm not trying to belabor the point, but uh, to your question about can you, if you have a more subdued property, can you build more severe greens? Probably. I mean, we have some out here, two is a two and three right there, two, two particularly. Two was really not much to look at. Yeah. It was just a simple little down towards the creek and back up again. And then you build that green that has all that movement in it and it sits there and it fits. I mean, again, shout out Ryan Farrow, um, Zach Vardy, Benjamin Warren, um, Eamon Sullivan. I mean, the guys who are out here just did an incredible job. And I think Ryan needs a special shot. He really led that whole uh, charge on sort of taking Bill and Ben's guidance and saying, here's, here's what we're doing and, and then figuring out what that meant. And there's plenty of severe stuff, but it all, it all works uh, beautifully. So yeah, couldn't be more proud of those guys and happy with, with what they've done. I can't wait till we can play golf out here. Me too. Yeah. That's, Me uh, too. that's what I meant. So James, this is part one. We'll, we'll do part two, part three, some other date, you know, but appreciate you coming on. Good talking. fun. Thank you. Yeah, it's always fun. good fun. All right, thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode was edited by Meg Atkins. Thank you, Meg. As I mentioned at the top, I will be writing a bunch of uh, journal entries of our time in Scotland. If you are interested in getting those, I would sign up for the Fried Egg newsletter. It is free. It comes out three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Will Knights writes a lot of it. Brendan writes in it. Brenda Porath. Garrett Morrison writes in it. I write in it occasionally. And it's a great way to stay up to date with all of the golf news uh, that's going on as well as my journals from Scotland. So sign up at thefriedegg.com for that. And thanks for listening to another edition of the podcast. We will be back on Friday. <laughs>